Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And this week we're going to take a step back and try and look at the big question that I think is probably at the back of a lot of people's minds at the moment, which is basically, is democracy in trouble? I mean, in real trouble? And not just in the United States. Probably it's in more trouble if it is in trouble in other places, and we'll come on to that in a second. But we are going to talk about Trump and we're going to talk about one of the big stories of this week, which is his fight, his ongoing fight with the American judiciary. This partly comes out of the conversation I had with Jill Lepore a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to her on the day that Trump was inaugurated as president. And we were discussing the question about how you understand Trump's presidency and what you compare it to. And one possibility is you look to American history and very broadly, although I know what Helen will say here, there was a civil war. We know there was a civil war. But very broadly, if you do that, you tend to come down on the more optimistic side in the sense that American democracy and the American Constitution, if we bracket the Civil War, has survived a lot, and in Jill Lepore's terms, a lot worse than this. The really bleak view is you take the comparison with the 1930s European outcomes, which obviously are very bad. <laughs> so that's when people start talking about fascism, Mussolini, and then when they get really wound up, Hitler. And then the third possibility, which is the one we're going to do today, which is probably, I think, the one that has most mileage in it, is to compare him with other people now because this kind of if we want to call it authoritarian strain in democracy has been visible in other places for longer than it has in the united states and people make the comparison with putin a certain amount there is definitely a comparison to be drawn with modi in india but there's also turkey which broadly speaking has been a democracy possibly, I'm looking at Aisha Zarakol, who's joining <laughs> us today, possibly just about still is. But certainly, I think we can say has gone a long way down the route that some people fear American democracy is going down. So it's great to have Aisha here. We've also got Helen, Erin and Maha. We're going to come back to Trump, but we're going to start with Turkey. I'm assuming that a lot of people listening to this don't know a huge amount about what's going on in Turkey at the moment. So Aisha, do you want to just kind of fill us in? Where is Turkish politics today? Turkish politics is not in a good place today. And I would say Turkey is not any longer really a democracy. Turkey has been under a state of emergency since July when there was a botched coup attempt. And the state of emergency basically gives the president, Erdogan, who's supposed to be just the head of state, executive powers. He can pass decrees very much like Trump, executive decrees with the power of law. And he's been using this to basically consolidate his standing. And we're not going to get into this in depth, but yes. the botched coup, I know there are lots and lots of theories about this. Was it a real coup in your mind? A real coup attempt? I think it was a real coup attempt. But I mean, there are many questions about, you know, who knew what, when and whether Erdogan let it play out so that he could retaliate. But he didn't stage it himself. I don't think so. Right. So there was the real attempt to overthrow him. Yeah. And he has used that to basically shut down Turkish democracy. Yes. And now he's pushing for a constitutional referendum that will make his unlimited executive powers permanent. And the really striking thing, and you've written about this, is that seen from the outside, so most people who look at Turkey think, right, we see what's going on here. Yeah. There was a coup attempt, and then this strongman leader has used that in order to enhance his powers. So he's kind of acting against the people. But the people, broadly speaking, public opinion is still on his side. Yes, I think so. I mean, it's hard to 
say anymore because he also controls almost all of the media. And they've been arresting people who say that they're going to vote no in the referendum, so it's very difficult to know who thinks exactly what. But I do think he has support, like Putin does, yeah. And this is support because people genuinely believe that Gulen and the Gulenists did pose a threat, what, to Turkish, the Turkish state, Turkish... The Turkish state, yeah, basically the Turkish state. So this is the group that was accused of masterminding the coup, and they became... I mean, it's, it, they are a real group with the leader uh, residing in the US and the you know, foreign powers, and this group have become convenient scapegoats for almost everything in Turkish politics. I mean, you've written this. He's yeah. almost like, to use that 1984 analogy, he's like an Emmanuel Goldstein yes, figure. Exactly. He's kind of... Yeah. He's the hate figure. And he's has he genuinely been able to use that to unify people who otherwise in Turkish politics should be on other sides. So, for instance, the Islamists and the army. Yes, actually, he's enjoyed greater degrees of public support since the coup. Uh, before, the society was very polarized between Erdogan supporters and, you know, generally the group we may call secularists. And many, after the coup, switched to Erdogan's side because they want, you know, a strong Turkey and they don't want, you know, Turkey to be undermined by nefarious foreign powers. The same thing happened in Russia after Crimea, similar dynamic. So we'll come on in a second to whether you could imagine scenarios in which that dynamic could play out in the US. So you said that Turkey was a democracy. I know people argue about this, and, and there's obviously a huge difference here with the United States where American democratic institutions have a long mm-hmm. history and they have functioned, broadly speaking, in a way that people have understood to be democratic for yeah. maybe a couple of hundred years, certainly for a century or so. How deeply rooted was the idea that democracy is a way to do politics in Turkey? Okay, my answer is going to be controversial, but... Um, In some ways, Turkish democracy goes back to 19th century. I mean, the first parliament uh, opened in the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. So in a way, the notion of democracy or representative politics has been around for a very long time. It's not a new thing for Turkish politics. It never functioned as well as it did in the US. But some of these, you know, judgments we pass about countries are, I think, narratives we construct based on what's happening in the present. And Turks in general have been very unhappy, you know, with their institutions. And Americans tend to look at the positive, you know, and tell, um, you know, well, they used, a good story. They used to tend I mean, to look they, at they kind of gloss over the fact that many people couldn't vote <laughs> for a long time, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't mean to create an equivalency, obviously, between Turkey and the US or uh, the US and Russia. But I think it is a mistake to think in this binary way where. You know, the West is something qualitatively different from the non-West when it comes to democratic institutions. And to add to that, there's a mistake, I think, to think of the political history of the United States as one solely based on ideals that we associate with liberal republicanism. There's always been competing ideological traditions in the United States with that. And there was a question that was asked for a long time, why no socialism in the United States? And the answer was, well, the United States didn't have a history of feudalism, and that didn't create the kind of class consciousness that you got in other countries. Well, if you ask descendants of American slaves, was there ever feudalism in the United States? They'd say, 
boy howdy, yes there was, right? There's also this notion that they probably wouldn't literally say boy howdy because it's not 1940s. But if you, you know, ask people, you know, well, you know, there's this history of U.S. isolationism. U.S. didn't want to be like Europe. They didn't want to engage in real politique, power politics. Well, ask the indigenous Americans, right? Was the United States isolationist? Well, they sure expanded westward across the uh, North American continent pretty rapidly and pretty viciously from the perspective of people there. So, I mean, there's a political scientist, Roger Smith, who's pointed this out, and I will provide uh, Catherine, our producer, with the citation for that later on, that it's a mistake to think of the United States as a liberal country with occasional pockets of aberrant behavior. There's always been competition, ideologically speaking, in the United States, contrary to liberalism. And we're seeing vast amounts of competition, I think, with liberal ideology right now. I agree. I mean, I think that one of the things that's been coming out in terms of the political discussion about the United States in the last few weeks since um, Trump's inauguration is, is what is American history? What is the story that we can use to tell what American history is? And if you start from the, the liberal story, it pretty much you know starts in, well, you can say starts before 1787, but 1787 and the constitution and the separation of powers and all these liberal checks on the exercise of power and the value of democracy, even though the founders actually hated the idea of democracy. That is the narrative and that is the American ideal. But if you look at the creation of the American state, you can say that's one part of the story, yes, but actually, as Aaron's just said, the territorial state that we know as the United States today has got nothing to do in some sense with that history. It was an imperial expansion, purchase of land, conquest of land, genocide of the indigenous people. I mean, and how you reconcile all that into being able to tell a coherent story about the American political experience, I think you can't. And that's part of the reason why we have such deep divisions about the self-understanding of, of America and what's going on now. So I want to come back to the States in a second. So I just want to ask one other broader sort of comparative question. I mean, it relates to this idea of American exceptionalism, but also the view that certainly was around 20, 30 years ago, which is sort of where America leads, the world follows. And now there's a feeling that where the world leads, America follows in the sense that there's a possibility, there's a wider trend here, Turkey, Russia, India, other places are kind of trialing a new model of authoritarian semi-democracy. I mean, it has democratic features. There are elections, referendums, and some of that. The thing that seems to be really suffering is the rule of law. And I can ask Aisha in a second again about the role of the courts and where opposition comes from in Turkey. But do we think that actually we really do need to see what's happening in America and possibly in Europe as part of this wider pattern that there is a, there is a trend at work? I think so. And I think sort of two things. One of the reasons that that comparison is difficult for lots of Americans and watchers of American politics to process is because we think of the US as a mature democracy that we want to lump with the European countries. But if you take Aaron's point seriously, the United States is a country that has only actually had the full institutions of liberal representative government for a half century. American democracy is only as old as the civil rights movement. And if that's where you're dating liberal democracy in the U.S. from, then it doesn't seem that weird that it would start to follow the path of what we consider to be sort of transitional emerging democracies in places like Turkey. Right. But um, on that point, so you might want to date full democracy to, the, say, the late 60s. But the institutions which produced that full democracy have a long history and have a legitimacy. So it's not you can't really compare it to countries where the whole package arrives in one piece in the 60s, 70s or 80s, right? 
I mean, but isn't I, that the difference? Right, but I think the point that I was making is in the Turkish case, that's not necessarily... Sure, okay. that we, we're overstating how much democracy arises out of nothing in the 60s and 70s in places that aren't North America and Western Europe, that it's much more gradual there as well. Part of now what we're talking about, too, is what is necessary and sufficient for democracy. And I was looking this morning, there's two popular measures of democracy that social scientists use, one more than the other. One is the Freedom House measure, and one is the polity measure, which is Marshall, Jaggers, and Gurr. I'll give Catherine the citation for that as well. And I was looking at these, and Freedom House has shown retreat of freedom globally for the past several years, whereas the polity measure doesn't show that. It shows democracy kind of plateauing, but certainly not retreating. And the same with autocracy, right? Autocracy kind of plateauing as well. And the reason for that is that Freedom House bases their notion of democracy much more on liberal democracy, right? So do you have these liberal civil rights and values that we associate with classic thinkers like John Locke and, and all the rest? Whereas polity focuses much, much more on institutional constraints. So for example, how constrained is the executive by other branches of government, right? And so that tells you why these two measures depart somewhat. One is focused very much so on executive authority. And from that perspective, right, the United States has always had pretty good checks on executive authority. Maybe not so much today, but in the 19th century, right, the president was often referred to as a glorified clerk, which was the same time period, right, where African-Americans and women were absolutely disenfranchised in the United States. So it matters quite a lot when you're talking about democracy, if you're talking about liberal values and personal autonomy versus how well institutions check and balance one another. And as you put it, one broadly is a measure of freedom and the other is a measure of democracy, and they aren't the same thing. Can I just ask, Aisha, one more question about Turkey, which is, and it relates to this. So what constraints are there now on executive power in Turkey? I mean, particularly the judiciary, because that often becomes the fault line. Is there a sense in which he has co-opted all of the branches of government into this personal project? Definitely. Actually, the judiciary was brought under political control with uh, some amendments in 2010. And since then, it's been a story of increasing capture of the judiciary branch by by the governing party, but eventually Erdogan. And how does that work? So when you say capture, what happens to the people who don't want to play along? Do they get fired? Yeah, they, they get, fi- get, get fired. Uh, I mean, especially since the coup attempt, many, many civil servants, including those in the judicial branch, have been... Yeah, fired or arrested. Many lawyers are also arrested. I'd love to hear if this is an apocryphal story, but I've read stories about Turkish Air Force pilots who go to bed at night in prison, wake up the next morning, fly sorties, attack sorties against IS targets in Syria, and then return to Insurlik Air Force Base and go back and spend the night in jail. I, ha- I haven't heard that, but it's quite possible. It's within possible. the bounds yes. of truth <laughs> these yeah. days. Similar to other things so, I've heard. So is there any pressure point in the system where you would think over the next five to ten years resistance to this regime could come from? Not really, unfortunately. I think all institutions that could check Erdogan's power and all you know centers of opposition have been dismantled one by one. That includes uh, the universities, doesn't the it? The universities. Just last night, 4,000 people were purged, including 300 or so academics, many respectable social scientists included. Yeah. Right. So we're not there yet in the United States. I mean, so when it's put like that, then... I've been purged. I'm here now. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) 
When you put it like that, then the kind of comparisons seem to start to break down because it's a huge leap. I mean, maybe I'm being naive here, but it seems to me it's a huge leap from where we are in the early days of the Trump presidency to the purge of social scientists across I mean, universities. I think that going back to the point of how to make the comparison, I'm generally very sceptical about the idea of American exceptionalism just because I don't think any country's experience transcends politics. But at the same time, I do think there are two things that we can see in action at the moment that distinguish what's going on from America in the political context in which they're happening from what's happening in other places, including Turkey. And the first of them is that the pressure point of the US over the next few years is going to be the federal-state relationship. And that is in part a question, in fact, in significant part, a question of the rule of law and whether federal law trumps state law um, or not. The other is, is that the United States is obviously the world's dominant power and it is in some sense in retreat from the way in which it's exercised power over a long period of time and particularly obviously that's playing out in terms of its position in the Middle East and certain things happen to states when they withdraw from the exercise of power abroad and that is playing itself out in the United States and for those two reasons I think that it's quite difficult to say oh, let's compare what's happening in the United States in relation to Trump with what's happening in other parts of the world, even before we get on to the fact that there is no prospect of you know, Harvard academics being slung in prison. To Helen's point about the federal and state relationship, because I do think that's really important, and I, I suppose we'll come to it in some detail later, the country to me that feels like the most viable international comparison, in part for that reason, is India under Modi. Because India has a federal system of government. Modi is an authoritarian, populist leader with, I think, shares with Trump a kind of corporatist policy vision um, that's got him a lot of business support for some parts of his platform that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily expect the business community to be on board with. Modi, both when he was being elected, but even since then, used social media in a very similar way to the way that Trump was using it, in that he had an account that was clearly written by him and not by any of his handlers and was saying extremely outrageous stuff and had this wide following of people on Twitter, some of whom were paid to stalk Twitter looking for people saying critical things about Modi and then descend on them in much the same way that all of the Twitter users with the Pepe the Frog icons now descend on you if you say critical things about Trump. I think that that's much, much closer. And if you look at where the challenge is to some of the more authoritarian kind of cracking down on NGOs, cracking down on the press, cracking down on universities, stuff that Modi's doing is coming from. It's coming from city and state governments within India. And there have been a number of kind of lawsuits around, does this particular policy area fall under the jurisdiction of the Indian national government or under the jurisdiction of the local authorities? And then that's the way that that's playing out. And I think that that's the way things are going to play out with Trump. Does that not then apply in the Turkish case? Are there no regional no. areas of resistance? It's a, um, it's a very centralized state. And I, I do think this makes a big difference. And this is one thing that gives me hope about the US versus context like Turkey. I mean, there's a Kurdish separatist movement, and they've been resisting Erdogan. And but that Turkish resistance state. goes way back, <laughs> yes, right? Yes. I do want to say one more thing about the comparison. I really hope, actually, because I have dual citizenship with the US and I would, for personal reasons, I would like one of these countries to survive this global trend. I, I do hope that the lessons from Turkey don't apply to the US. Having said that, it took Erdogan 15 years to get to this point. It happened very gradually. I mean, for the first 10 years, it seemed to be that Turkey was in, in fact democratizing even more. And then you have backsliding. And all that time, people who were opposing him were being told, you know, you're overreacting. Uh, 
he's not as bad as, you know, his rhetoric would lead you to believe. So many of these debates we're having about Trump now, they seem very familiar to me. <laughs> and that's what makes me worry about the U.S. I wanted to ask Aisha a question, which is the term deep state, yes. which is used in political science, almost, I think, basically originates with yes. Turkey, referring yes. to the bureaucratic powers in Turkey as yes. a way of resisting kind of civilian leaders' authority, right? And Turkey's averaged to coup about once a decade, really, since since 1945 or so. There's also been talk about, you know, can the deep state in the United States, whether that's the intelligence community or the National Park Service, check Trump. What do you think of that comparison? Does that comparison make any sense, the deep state in Turkey versus the deep state in the U.S.? Well, the deep state in Turkey, we know it exists because it, as you say, has been active through coups and other ways of checking elected politicians. Uh, I had never heard that term applied to the U.S. except in, you know, cons- conspiracy it's sometimes, theories. It's sometimes <laughs> called the blob, actually, in terms of the foreign policy diplomatic community, the blob. Or of the national policy. security state. The national security state, yeah, would be a synonym. Yeah. Well, what Erdogan did was to make a deal with those guys. You know, they've they tried to check him uh, at several junctures, and now they're all, you know, one happy family together. And the coup was vital for that, the failed coup, wasn't it? I mean, wasn't that the kind of thing that sealed the deal? Yes, uh, and some people say, you know, Erdogan really isn't in power anymore. It's just the face of the deep state reincarnated, you know, the populist face. I, I don't know how true that is. It, I mean, that's the difficulty of studying regimes like Erdogan's or Putin's and maybe Trump's in the future is there is almost no transparency. So you're constantly reading tea leaves, you know, who's close to who and who's now on the outs. And all theories are equally plausible. They're very incompetent. No, they're masterminds, you know, distracting us. (laughs) The evidence lends itself. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The both readings equally well. Okay, so I'm going to give one variant on that. This is something that people have been talking about this week. Are they incompetent? Are they masterminds? And let's let's really get back to the United States. So the fight that's ongoing between the executive, Trump, and various levels of the judicial system in the States about whether his executive order that outlawed people coming from seven countries, Muslim majority countries, is or isn't legal. So one view is that it has been so incompetently done by the administration that it's just falling apart. The other view is that these are serious political thinkers and strategists. And for them, the big question is a before and after question. And we've kind of been hinting at this in relation to the coup in Turkey, the failed coup, which is the key event for the Trump presidency hasn't happened yet. And the key event is going to be when there is some kind of, for want of a better word, outrage. I mean, whatever it is, a terrorist incident, some kind of event which really focuses people on the question of security. And what they want, in a sense, is almost to lose this case so that they can say, I told you so, now you're going to have to do it our way. 
And I know that second one is coming close to being a conspiracy theory. And, you know, the, the, the line between conspiracy theories and just trying to work out what's going on is getting blurred. But does anyone have a view on this? Is this, and it could be both. I mean, my view is that conspiracy theories and cock-ups often go together, or other conspiracies and cock-ups often go together. They're not opposed. Do we have a sense of how we should read it? Aaron? Yeah, my vote always goes for incompetence most of the time. Just Because uh, we, we see the world around us and we know that I <laughs> that's studied, how people... And I study political psychology. I mean, there's only so much the human brain can do to anticipate future events and act accordingly at the present. That is not to say, though, that people aren't excellent opportunists when events do arise. And one of the things to keep in mind here is for a while, especially amongst international relations scholars in the 1990s, we talked about transnational movements, transnational activist networks as if they were these fuzzy, wonderful rainbow bunny-like things that would you know, get rid of landmines and produce better climate control uh, policies and all these other things. The thing that we forgot, right, was that transnational movements can also be illiberal. And right now we're seeing this swing towards right-wing populism all around the globe. And you'll notice that Trump seizes on very minor events like nobody being killed in France in a knife wielding attack by an individual, not at the Louvre Museum, but at the Louvre Mall, right? And he seizes on that and says, you know, America, wake up. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be in the United States. And if there are people like Le Pen and others in power, right, they will form a transnational network and their followers will form a transnational network. And security threats in one place will be used to justify crackdowns in another. So this doesn't just have to happen in the US. And I'll just say on that, actually, if you look at what happened in the Republican nomination race, that um, Trump was kind of stalled until the Paris attacks happened and he got quite a significant political boost out of those events. I agree. I don't know that Trump himself is planning something like that. I think that's a level of, it's not even just a conspiracy thing. It's a level of, you know, sort of strategic calculation that I'm not comfortable attributing to somebody who I think is shooting from the hip a lot more often. But Steve Bannon, his chief strategist, I think is thinking that way. And there's stuff he's said about wanting to get inside the state to destroy the state that seems to me like he's thinking about I'm looking for a crisis as an opportunity to remake the state in the way I want to remake it. And that is the kind of scheme that I could imagine him operating under. I just think, though, I mean, I don't particularly have an opinion on whether there's a strategy or incompetence to this, but I do think trying to think of some comparisons and think about the American historical experience that we really shouldn't go overboard, though, on the extent of this confrontation between the president and the judiciary because they are hardwired into American politics, particularly at the beginning of presidencies. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt began his presidency by having people in the White House draw up plans to get rid of judicial review altogether. Presidents wanting to do radical things come into office. They will have a confrontation with the judiciary. Samaha, so the, the kind of really conspiratorial view of it is that you're right, Trump isn't behind this, he's shooting off the hip. But the reason they like him tweeting the way he does is precisely because it sets up this dynamic, because the tweeting is really unhelpful for building the legal case, because he says all of these things that are a hostage to fortune. You know, is it really a Muslim ban and so on? And his language just makes his lawyer's job really hard. But his language is fantastically useful if you think, basically, you're going to lose these fights. And the real fight is the fight that happens when there's an emergency, because it sets up a view in the public's mind that Trump was stymied by the establishment. So, I mean, I think it's, without it being some kind of giant conspiracy, that could be a plausible strategy. The reason they let him speak from the hip is because they are thinking about 
what comes next. I mean, I think that's the way that it, this happened during the campaign. There were the whole time that he was running his campaign. I think we were all sitting here and every pundit and commentator was sitting there going at some point, surely his campaign staff are going to rein in, you know, this Twitter account. It's obviously causing him so many problems with the press and so forth. And they could see that there were other uses for what he was doing, even if it wasn't useful in a conventional way. So I think, you know, if his advisors wanted to shut down the Twitter account, they would have done it by now. And the fact that they haven't suggests that there's some instrumental use in him saying all of these weird things at strange hours of the night. I think the question, though, is, is much harder than that, is who is they in this? I mean, That's always the question ben, with conspiracy yeah. theories. Who is this? Who <laughs> That's is, why they yeah. break down. Who is this? Who is this? What is the Trump presidency? Because, you know, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about Steve Bannum in recent weeks, as if he's the man who's now, you know, the, the architect of Trump's grand strategy. Well, American politics doesn't allow one person who is a personal advisor to the president to play that kind of role. There's just, it just doesn't. I mean, aside from anything else, the national security state will, you know, swallows up presidents, you know, it can back Steve Bannon away with the palm of its hand when it wants to. So I think the question is much harder than that is, is, is what is actually the relationship of power in the White House at the moment? How does that stand in relationship to Trump's temperament? And we haven't got any idea really what the answers to these questions are. Yeah, like I just was saying, it's just reading the tea leaves. Yeah. The New York Times had a crack at it over the weekend. There was an interesting piece about inside sort of the first two weeks of the Trump White House, which I, Catherine, I can give you the link for that. We um, don't, we really but don't. It, but, it, but it's... But it's, um, it was interesting in that that piece was all about, you know, in part because the Congress is slowly confirming the cabinet nominations. So they're sort of trickling into their offices pretty slowly. There's been some turnover and exodus at the civil service level in a lot of the agencies. So there's a small number of people actually on the White House staff right now. And there is some turf struggle taking place between them. So I think Bannon is very obviously one center of power. Then there's Priebus as the chief of staff and the kind of very conventional early 21st century Republican Party around him. Then there's the weird appointment of Trump's son-in-law as an advisor and the role that he seems to play as apparently some kind of moderating influence. And they're sort of duking it out. But I think on the stuff around immigration, it's pretty clear that the person who has the most authority over those issues in particular is Bannon. And because that's what this fight has been about, I think this stuff around immigration is has very much looks like a Steve Bannon policy. So to go back to the bigger question of how much trouble is democracy in, Darren Asamoglu, who's an economist, who's a kind of specialist in state failure, what causes states to fail. And he wrote before Trump even took the oath of office that we should be afraid because he felt that the faith that people have in America being different because its institutions have deeper roots and they particularly have deeper roots in kind of popular legitimacy is harking back to a past that no longer exists, including for the obvious reason that all of these institutions have become polarised by party divisions now. So his view is Congress doesn't act as the check it used to because Congress is so partisan. And the judiciary doesn't act as the check it used to because the judiciary is so partisan. And actually partisanship is the thing that's eaten away at the capacity of these institutions to hold the executive in check. Now, this has caused a lot of, you know, not everyone agrees with this, but his line is that we should look to Turkey, we should look to Russia, this is not kind of the failure of democracy in the old-fashioned sense of sort of generals coming in on horseback and corralling the people to behave themselves. This is just personal, kleptocratic, authoritarian government where institutions just get eaten up by are you for or against the regime? I mean, is that, do we buy that? I buy it. I mean, 
uh, of course, it's no wonder. Ajemolu is also, you know, he grew up in Turkey and then moved to the US. So <laughs> we, we have similar... <laughs> so he's also hoping one of these two countries gets by. Yes. So, I mean, I think if you put the, all of these countries together, that's the story that emerges. I wish I could have Fukuyama's optimism about, you know, institutions, but I yeah, don't. Yeah, so Fukuyama, who's no, not the optimist he was 25 years ago, but his line is that the great thing about American institutions is they're so kind of complicated and dysfunctional <laughs> that their dysfunctionality will hold the president in check. I mean, I'm more inclined to agree with Fukuyama on this one, because, and I, I do think that we have to look at America's history and see that these confrontations between the different sites of power in the American Republic is absolutely par for the course. I mean, a lot of the talk about the threat that Trump poses, I think, is creating in order to make the particular argument people want to make about the nature of that threat. I'm not disputing that there is a threat, is based on a mythical version of American history, simply one that, that never existed. And in particular, you know, like presidents have regularly assaulted the, you know, the justices. I mean, you, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who was the first person who was essentially subject to the court's authority, simply said he didn't recognise it. He said that the only sovereignty in the American system could be the people themselves. Obama himself lectured the Supreme Court justices in, about how wrong he thought their decision was. In, I think it was his Citizens, Citizens United Citizens case. United case in the State of the Union address. I think that the point there where Asimoglu has a point is, is manifests itself in a different way, which is that is the intense divisiveness of partisanship. And that, I think, plays out as much as anything, actually, amongst citizens and in the federal-state relationship in particular. I think the most worrying thing about the future of the American Republic is the clash between federal authority and state law, because that has got a tragic history in the United States. OK, well, let's finish with that, because you know another story that's kind of rumbling away, it's tr- being treated mainly as a joke, is... You know, Brexit, Grexit, Calexit, that California is going to leave the union. California is not going to leave the union. But there are presumably points of real tension potentially in the future in the relationship between the federal government and a state like California, which after all went more democratic in this election where the rest of the country was or most of the rest of the country was going the other way. Yeah, and I think that you can see things that are happening since that are particularly worrying in this respect because before the election of the last, for quite some time actually, in the case of some of the Californian cities, we've had sanctuary cities. We've essentially had cities that say they don't recognise federal law when it comes to immigration. There is now a bill in the Californian Senate, as I understand it, which essentially would turn, if it were passed, California into a sanctuary state. So have the whole of the state reject the claim to federal authority over immigration. Now, given immigration is such a contested issue and given its importance in the Trump agenda, it's pretty difficult to be optimistic about how the way in which this works out. And Trump again in one of his tweets said that he would cut off federal funding to California if this bill was passed. So he's not exactly low in the temperature on this kind of political conflict. So you don't actually need California actually to secede to have a major political crisis. I think that kind of crisis is coming. And I do think that the Trump administration is going to try and defund in some way the sanctuary cities and states. And it's not just California. I think something like that is going to come pretty soon in New York as well, where both the mayor of New York City and the governor of New York State have been pretty vocal in saying that we will figure out, we'll do everything we can at the state level to resist the policies that are coming down on immigration, which makes perfect sense from the perspective of those two states whose economies run almost completely on, you know, on migration. But I also think, I mean, it does have that tragic history. And obviously, Helen's right, uh, there was a civil war. But I also think that throughout the late 20th, early 21st century, there have been periods where state policy has diverged from federal policy, and that's ended up leading to a change in federal policy. 
so that, you know, that is the way that we slowly legalize same-sex marriage. That is the way that we have been slowly walking back our positions on drugs. That's been happening at the state level. The state passes legislation. There's some conflict. And at a certain point, the federal government retreats. And that is the way that, you know, sort of on certain issues, U.S. policy has been dragged mostly leftwards. So I think there are ways for that to resolve that aren't necessarily so bloody. And Helen, do you think there's a possibility that Trump could lose that fight? I mean, so so if it becomes a contest between California or New York and the federal government, Trump has to mobilize some forces to get his side to win. So he can defund and that has to presumably come with the support of Congress. He talked famously he tweeted a couple of weeks ago about sending in the feds to Chicago. And again, there's this question, who who is he talking about? How, who would do his bidding? So there will come a point where people have to answer the question, who will do his bidding? And do you think there's a chance that he would lose? I think there's a good chance that he would lose. I and mean, I think that one of the things that has kind of been forgotten about at the moment is, is in many ways what a weak political position that he is in. I mean, you know, he ran not just against the Democratic Party establishment, but he ran against the Republican Party establishment as well. In fact, he damned it as the whole American establishment. He doesn't have a, a Congress that is sympathetic to his agenda on the whole. And he also has had to fill his administration with lots of people who are unsympathetic to his agenda because there simply weren't enough people who he could have got through nomination hearings in this in the Senate in order for him to fill those positions with Trumpites, essentially. And then he's got his relationship with the national security state. He's got his relationship with the people he's put in the high profile cabinet jobs who don't necessarily share his agenda about um, Russia. I mean, I think if you looked at it from Trump's point of view in this respect, it looks pretty isolated. And, and so in that sense, I, I wouldn't bet on him winning any of these political confrontations. And that makes it completely unlike Turkey in 2017 makes it unlike Turkey in 2017, but it makes it look like Turkey in 2002, <laughs> when Erdogan did not start from a position of power, but he managed to... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hope Trump loses these fights, but uh, a part of me is worried because of these other cases that we went through, and also because of the international, general international environment. I mean, if it was just one place... You could say, okay, it will be checked, whatever institutions exist in that particular context, we can rely on them or not, or, but we can contain the damage. But when you look at the whole world, it's almost all of the major regional and global powers now are under authoritarian or semi-authoritarian leadership. And is, is, this, I mean, is this going to be the pattern of the century? I mean, that, that gives me pause. And I think we can say that, so 2002 to 2017, that's 15 years. So if Trump is still in power in 15 years' time, then definitely something's gone wrong with American democracy. Well, if, if, if Trump's still in power in 15 years' time, there is no American democracy because there are term limits in the United States. I know that. That's why I said it. <laughs> so we can agree on that. Thank you, everyone, for that cheery chat. <laughs> uh, next week, it will be a more cheery chat. I'm going to be talking to Rory Bremner about how you parody people who are beyond parody. And also we're going to be having an in-depth look at the French presidential election. We haven't talked about that for a while. Things have been happening there too. If you want to hear the news about Penelope Gate and everything that goes along with that, we will explain it next week. Do please join us then. Do please subscribe. Rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends if you like this podcast. The more people who listen, the easier it is for us to carry on. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. So, okay. Stop okay. using up the well, material. Well, you keep passing them questions. I, I love how you act like yeah. this is a finite resource. Like if you <laughs> say a fact once, that now you've depleted it. Like our precious natural resources and facts and data.
And facts are scarce. Facts are so scarce. In this day and age, that's true. They are scarce. You just used one. What did I do this morning? My feet hurt, so I uh, rubbed lotion on them. It made me feel like a dainty lady. Um, nice smell of rose rose water and you know, nice things at the feet at the foot level though. So everything else smells like a man, but at the foot level, I. Okay. Sorry. Another fact. Another fact. Just wasted. Just wasted. That, yeah, that comes no. up naturally in the podcast. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it in there. How's everybody feet doing? Sure. Mine smells elegant. <laughs> 